Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon text for today is our gospel reading, When Jesus Turned Water into Wine. And I got to say, this text hits close to home for me, not because I've seen water turned into wine, but because at my wedding, we almost ran out of beer. We plan to provide beer for people when they arrived at the reception to have it available through dinner and well into the dancing portion of the evening. And since we knew just one keg wasn't going to be enough, we ordered two. But as dinner was finishing up, our contact person at the venue came to us and told us, we're almost out of beer already. And the dancing hadn't even begun. In fact, it was still light out. And so they asked if we wanted to get another keg, and of course, absolutely, we didn't want to be known for not providing guests uh, drinks, right? We didn't want that embarrassment. And so I can identify here with the host of the wedding at the uh, wedding here in Cana. It's a similar situation, right? We have another wedding, and oops, there's not enough for people to drink. And so at Cana, it's Jesus to the rescue, right? He is the, the party preserver, the wine provider, the miracle maker. It's an interesting first sign that Jesus performs, as we're told in the book of John. It was the very first thing that he did. The very first miracle, I guess you could say, he performed. And at first glance, one could look and say, see, Jesus liked to party. Or Jesus is pro-wine and therefore it's okay to get drunk. We Lutherans love to pull this one out. When our Baptists friend talk about not drinking or that it's okay to not drink, it's not okay to drink, we'd argue if, if that's the case, then why did Jesus provide wine for people, right? I had a great uncle that was a teetotaler, which is what someone is called that doesn't drink or doesn't think it's okay to drink. And I knew him while I attended college, and let's just say we didn't see eye to eye on that. I didn't think it was funny either. Now, if you were to stop the theological assessment of this pericope there and were to just use this as a proof text that liquor is acceptable in God's eyes, well, sadly, you'd be falling short of some very important imagery and meaning. The connections that this story has with the rest of Scripture and specifically at the end of Jesus' life are just too great to ignore. The connections are too symbolic and too meaningful to disregard. And trust me, we'll get there. But first, we need some context to help us to understand what's going on here. And if understanding the baptism of Jesus, which we covered last week, was like permit driving, then this pericope that we deal with today is going to feel like NASCAR driving, okay? We're going to go from the slow lane to the fast lane pretty quickly, so buckle up. Now, at the onset, we have Jesus who's attending a marriage celebration or a feast. Now, marriage back in Jesus' day was very different than it is today. But one similarity is the celebration period of when the couple has been joined together. And we know from Scripture that God is pro-marriage. We hear from Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This line of Scripture doesn't just live in the Old Testament like we just heard in Genesis, but it can also be found 
in the Gospels, in Matthew 19.5 and Mark 10.7, and in the epistles in 1 Corinthians 6.16 and Ephesians 5.31. It's like it didn't matter which scroll you grabbed off the shelf in the early church, you were bound to find this scripture passage. And we know that God is pro-marriage because he uses marriage as a metaphor for the type of relationship that we have with God. Jesus is the bridegroom. We, the church, are his bride. Now, sadly, we're not a very faithful bride. We chase after the things of this world constantly. We ignore what God has to say to us. We lust after all sorts of things, even though we know we shouldn't. But God loves us just the same. Getting back to the marriage feast at Cana that Jesus is attending, we can see here that there is water for ceremonial cleansing. This was a Jewish wedding, and it was customary that people would wash utensils, and specifically their hands, before they ate. But Jesus takes these supplies used for purification, and he replaces it with wine. Now, sure, if I wanted to make a bunch of wine really quickly, I, too, would grab the closest thing I could find to a bathtub. But like I mentioned earlier, there, there's meaning in using these specific jars. By using these water containers, containers created and purchased for the very distinct uh, purpose of ceremonial cleansing people in accordance with the law, by using these to make wine... Jesus is essentially doing away with the law's requirement for ceremonial washing, and he's replacing it with something new. One should also take note here that the way that someone was cleansed in the Old Testament was by doing something. They, by washing their hands in these jars, were working to fulfill the law and to earn God's favor. But Jesus does away with that. And instead, he provides the sweetest, most delicious wine in its place. And by receiving this wine, people are given all they need to enjoy the celebration of the union of the bride and the bridegroom. That same thing still happens today. We, too, are given wine, and through it, God delivers forgiveness of sins. Through the wine that we receive as a foretaste of the marriage feast to come, the marriage of the Lamb and His bride, God delivers to us sinners forgiveness. And because we are forgiven, we are made pure, we are washed clean, this wine that we taste tastes all the sweeter because there's nothing that we can do to earn this forgiveness. It's all given and paid for by the God who loves us. But the symbolism we see in Jesus providing wine isn't where the deeper meaning and imagery end. Even Mary, Jesus' mother, being present at the wedding holds special significance. What's interesting with Mary is that she's present here in the book of John and that we don't see her again. Not until uh, the very end of Jesus' life as he's hanging on the cross and he has a conversation with Mary from the cross. And in both instances, Jesus is uh, addressing Mary as woman. 
which isn't necessarily a disrespectful term, but it's a term that carries with it some, some distance. Notice he doesn't say mom, or mama, or ma, or mommy, or whatever, any kind of variation of that. He calls her woman. And not like the derogatory uh, woman as in make me a sandwich, not that kind either. But woman, sort of like ma'am. And the fancy theological term for this when she's present here and then present again at the end is called an inclusio. Here's your theology lesson for the day. An inclusio. Another way to describe it is uh, bracketing, or I heard envelope structure, or book ending. That same kind of idea there. And this portion of scripture includes another inclusio. And it's when Jesus is talking about his hour coming. He talks about his hour has not yet come, and then at the cross we see that his hour has come. Now, despite knowing all of this important symbolism, there's still one question that remains. And that question is, why did Jesus perform this sign? Why at some random wedding, we don't even know whose wedding it was, why at some random wedding did Jesus manufacture like 120 to 180 gallons of wine? Which I did the math. If you put that in kegs, that's 11 and a half kegs. That's a lot of wine. You might be wondering, why did he do that? And, and for that matter, what bearing does that have on my life? And for that, you need to look at what John says in the gospel. Notice that John called what he calls this act a sign. Verse 11 says, This, the, fir the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice what it's not called. A miracle. You see, this wasn't some parlor trick to get people to pay attention to him. Jesus wasn't some street magician trying to amass a following so he'd be popular and well-liked. But instead, he performed signs like this, or healing people, or providing food for thousands, or even raising people from the dead. And these signs he performed were to have the same effect that Moses had on Pharaoh. These signs served to convince people that Jesus' coming was authentic and legitimate. It was to show that he had been sent for their deliverance. Jesus did signs and so manifested. He made apparent here on earth his glory and that his disciples believed in him. Again, this isn't just a miracle. And if John wanted to call it a miracle, there's a different word in Greek that he could have used. And here's the difference. A miracle is some act that can elicit awe and wonder. But a sign? A sign confronts a man with God's presence in such a way as to demand faith and obedience. And just like God was present at the signs being done in Egypt in hopes of softening Pharaoh's hardened heart. God continues to be present in the signs of the New Testament and in the word and sacrament ministry of this church to soften hardened hearts and to create belief in the unbeliever. A miracle is a cool thing that makes you wonder how they did it. A sign means God is present and requires the observer to act. 
God continues to give us signs in the blood of this sacrament because we believe that Jesus is truly present. In the word spoken, Jesus comes to us, and in the body and blood, we believe that Jesus enters us, and he washes us, and he forgives us, and he makes us holy. And on account of that forgiveness received in bodily form, we, participants, observe God's glory manifested, and by it we enter deeper into faith. In this special meal, in this spiritual feast, in this remembrance of Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we recall the very words that he spoke as recorded in the book of Matthew. Take, eat, this is my body. When he gave the bread and drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins when he gave the wine. And like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By taking and eating and drinking this meal, you behold God's glory manifested to you, the disciples of Jesus who believe in him. And you who believe proclaim Jesus' death, his death upon a cross. As I close, I want to focus on one little detail of Jesus' death that we sometimes skip over. Listen to what it says in John 19, 33. And this is right after uh, Jesus gives up his spirit and is now hanging lifeless on the cross. John tells us, But when they, the soldiers, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34 goes on, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. When this soldier, checking to see if Jesus was really dead, poked his side, what comes spewing out is a mixture of water and blood. This act was, was just what literally was just a soldier doing his job becomes a sign for us and for all believers. Especially when we connect uh, when it's connected to Jesus' first sign of turning water into wine and knowing the connection of blood and wine at the Lord's Supper. This, which flows from his riven side, is all given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died for you. And he did that on account of his love for you. As we prepare to approach God's table later in this service, may these words and the reflection that we have here deepen your understanding. May you know that God is present with you as you are strengthened in your faith. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.